you have a Bible, I invite you to be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Something seems to have fallen beneath all the Christianese, all the mumbo-jumbo and theology and day in and day out, or for some people, Sunday in and Sunday out, Christianity. Something big, something central, something foundational, at least in my own experiences, seems to be largely silent. I was at the Lewiston History Christian Gift Center last week. They're closing down. The owners are retiring. And I believe they'll be around until the Sunday or two after April or after Easter. And I perused the books. Yes, I went to the Bible section first and I was there for a good 20 minutes. But, and I, but then I went to go peruse the Christian living books. And, and as I perused them and the movies and the CDs, music CDs, I didn't, I didn't see something. I, I wasn't looking for it too, but I don't remember it jumping out at me. And many times, it's really right under the surface. It's mentioned in the meanings of other words, but it's rarely emphasized forgiveness. Forgiveness. The gospel is forgiveness. You have been forgiven by God. I have been forgiven by God. And forgiveness can be so hard from all angles. It can be hard to forgive those who have done us wrong. It can be hard to seek someone's forgiveness. And it can be hard to be convicted and told, you need to go ask for forgiveness. You need to apologize. Of those three, forgiving others, asking for forgiveness when I know I'm wrong, or being told that I need to ask for forgiveness, the last one is hardest for me. Because I didn't do anything wrong. You don't know me. You don't know the situation. You don't know what they did first. Because that's always a holy reason not to seek forgiveness. And it's really hard at times, especially if you've not been a Christian, or if you've been far from God, to be told that you owe an apology to God. (laughs) You need God's forgiveness. A lot of Help, he's been in my life. (laughs) When I was also in Lewiston with Christy this past week, I've been on a Western kick lately. So I picked up a few Western movies from thrift stores. Any of you ever seen Shenandoah with James Stewart? He has one of the most funniest prayers for Mills I've ever seen. He's a widower and he sits down with seven kids and one daughter-in-law. They bow their heads and he begins... Dear God, even though we're the ones who prepared the land, we're the ones who've planted the seeds, and we're the ones who cultivated and farmed and pulled and prepared the foods, and we're the ones who set the table, we nevertheless thank you for this meal we're about to enjoy. (laughs) And a lot of people, that's our relationship with God. I've done pretty much everything. What do I owe God? Least of all, an apology. Least of all, to seek His forgiveness. Here's the thing that I believe that's right below the surface of our story today. Or at least it appeared to me 
to be so. As soon as Saul's actions are connected to God's, to a need of God's forgiveness, it made clear to me that what Saul was doing. The orders were simple enough. We read it last week from Samuel. Speaking on behalf of the Lord said to Saul, destroy literally everything. Everyone, spare no one, spare nothing. That's what God told Samuel to tell Saul. And if you were here last week and that command makes you uncomfortable, I invite you to, if you weren't here last week, I invite you to look it up online and listen it. Saul said, okay. But then we read that he didn't do that. He spared the king of the Amalekites and he and his troops spared some cattle. That's where we pick it up. I invite you to stand one more time as we read 1 Samuel 15, 10 through 23. Let's stand for in honor of hearing the Lord's word. Again, beginning with verse 10 of 1 Samuel 15. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel. Saul went to Carmel, where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The the troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, Although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, Go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we look to books like this in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of culture. There seems to be a lot of obstacles for it to get into us. But Father, I believe you've given us your word for a reason. I believe that just as you inspire the writing of these words, you can also be the one teaching these words to us. So I pray that you would use these words for your glory and the good of others, the upbuilding of our faith, sanctification of those growing in Jesus, conversion for those who are outside of Jesus. Father, however you desire to use it, I pray that you would use it. But Father, I also know that many of us have hard hearts. 
darkened hearts, obstacles, little attorneys that we put in our brains and want to fight with you. Father, I pray for soft hearts today. Help us to hear you and help us to respond as you would have us to respond. We love you, we thank you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A lot of outward expressions, actions, have a root cause that seem so far from those outward expressions and actions. How many of you have realized that? Sometimes addicts realize this, and I'm not just talking about drug addicts. I do comfort food a lot. I know it's hard to imagine. I'm a pretty fit and trim guy. While some people have a phrase, I need a beer, sometimes I say, I need a third cup of coffee, because two is my usual limit. The reality is this, I don't need a third cup of coffee because I thirst. It's because I'm stressed or I'm busy or I'm anxious, and the third cup of coffee is my reward or my calming down. Root cause has nothing to do with the outward effect or action. Coffee has nothing to do with anxiety, only that for me and perhaps for other coffee addicts like me, whatever is making me busy and anxious, whatever tells my screwed up way of thinking, oh, coffee will make this better, when perhaps a change of schedule or a discipline against wasting time so I'm not up later or whatever can resolve the issue. Have you met or heard about people, or maybe you're one of them, welcome, glad you're here, that their whole life is this? performance, habits, entire ways of thinking that is really just a reaction, an outward activity with really a root cause that seems so unrelated to what's happening. Don't you love people who are hostile, angry, and hard to get along with for reasons that has nothing to do with you, but has everything to do with someone else in their lives? Their dad, their spouse, their mom, but they take it out on everyone else because whoever they're angry with is either dead or the person themselves are too cowardly to confront the problem. In chapter 13 of our book, Saul tried to do Samuel's duties and prepares a sacrifice because Saul was getting impatient for Samuel. So Saul makes an unlawful sacrifice and Samuel told him then back in chapter 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel. But now your reign will not endure. The Lord has found a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. And since then, in my mind, underlying the text of this book outlining Saul's actions has to me been Saul trying to prove Samuel wrong and Saul trying to keep his kingdom. But his kingdom and him keeping it is not the problem at all. Let me say that again. That is not the problem at all. Saul has nothing to prove to anyone. Saul has only one need, 
to be forgiven. But instead of having this out with God and with Samuel, Saul has taken matters into his own hands again and again, and he doesn't listen to Samuel or God, and he doesn't destroy everything as he should have. And like so many of us, we we see a matter of conviction met with ignorance. Saul is convicted before God, and then he's willfully ignorant about it. First, God tells Samuel about Saul's problems. Again, in our primary text today, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. God begins by using a strong, strong word that is only connected to God in the Bible twice, here and before the flood. God regrets. God regrets making mankind before the flood, and he regrets here making Saul king. Now, this is hard for us to wrap our heads around because we know this. God knows all. And if we agree and believe that that the Bible tells us that God knows all, and if you need a verse, here's a verse, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, make it pretty apparent where God says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. And how can God say that and do that, but then be the one responsible for appointing Saul to be king, only to know that he would regret that decision? We might be quick to think that regret means a desire to rewind time, having not known how something might turn out. But even when speaking of people having regrets, that's not how it always is, isn't it? Some of you have likely gone into a situation a little hesitant, a little leery, and lo and behold, your hesitancy and leeriness has proven true, and suddenly you had regret about something you expected to happen anyways. This is a little like a parent or parents perhaps being asked by their teenager, Dad, Mom, can I go to this party? And perhaps the parents expect the party hmm, might have some questionable things going on there, but they don't know for sure and they don't want to be a fun killer. And so they decide to make the situation an exercise of trust for their child's part. And so they say, sure. But then it turns out the child gets in trouble at the party simply because the parents foreknew or anticipated doesn't make them feel any less regret. God knows how everything will turn out. He knows what's to come after Saul becomes king. Nevertheless, just how a parent might have regrets experiencing the trials and the disobedience that they expect from a child, so God does concerning Saul. I knew he was going to sin, but man, I hate to see him do it. (laughs) Why did God regret making Saul the king? For he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. You need to see this from God's heart and not from a man's rebellious perspective. The latter says this, man's rebellious perspective. Wow, God just wants a power trip, doesn't he? He's upset because Saul's not asking how high when God says jump monkey. 
What a self-absorbed God. Wisdom would tell us, Solomon would write for us in Proverbs 19.23, the ESV states, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. So don't hear God's regrets of Saul turning away from him and not following his instructions as a tyrannical dictator upset that one of his subjects is unruly. But rather hear it as a shepherd whose dumb sheep has wandered off and is now exposed to the elements and to the predators. God wants you and God wants me, not because he desires to be in charge of us, but because he desires for us to thrive and do what we are made for. His love is real, though. It's not coerced. It's not forced. So we always have the option to obey. We always have the option to turn away and not carry out what he wants, though it would be to our own detriment. And the enemy just wants us to believe that it will be to our fulfillment when it's quite the opposite. So God regrets this. And Samuel is pained by it too to see the one he anointed to be king over the land wander away. Verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul, but it was reported to Samuel Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. This is probably appearing worse to Samuel by the minute. <laughs> Did you catch that? First of all, he made, um, first of all, I should say, this made me laugh self-righteously. Really? A monument to himself? <laughs> like literally Saul is putting up a statue of himself like, that's holy. <laughs> How narcissistic. But then I thought, and this might sting the younger ones in our church more than the older ones. This is what Facebook and social media is all about. We make profiles and we want to present the best us possible. We want to give the impression that life is all roses and dandelions. Now, don't hear me wrong. Personally, I also kind of wonder when people post their problems on Facebook. I personally think people ought to seek out help with people on a face-to-face basis or personally, as opposed to airing their problems for everyone to see. But it seems whether we're trying to post stuff that makes us look like I'm all put together, or opposite, look, I'm drowning in a pit, (laughs) many times both come from a selfish, self-absorbed heart. Because all it is is, look at me, focus on me, I'm pretty important, I should be important enough for you to hone your energies and infections, and affections, I should say, not infections, and and. Focus in on me. We all want to be loved. I get that. But how many times do we do it for the wrong reasons? Selfish reasons. And realistically, our aim should be to point people to Jesus. Who can truly save. As opposed to us. Than to have people admire or soak in our goodness or our sadness. Whatever. Saul, great king that he is, builds a monument for himself. He beat the Amalekites. It was an extensive campaign. Samuel sees this campaign, or I should say, uh, in the context, Saul went to Carmel and he set up a monument for himself. And then the text continues. Then he, I believe referring to Saul, turned around and went down to Gilgal. So when Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. This is like when you walk into the kitchen 
and your kid is with a stuffed mouth. Morning, Dad, I didn't eat any cookies. (laughs) Saul's carried out the Lord's instructions, he says. These instructions were plain enough. Destroy everything and spare nothing. Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Samuel answered, The troops brought them. Let's look at what the record says. Verse 9 says that, quote, Saul and the troops spared all the things they did. Now, I wouldn't doubt that Saul maybe gave the orders to the troops to spare the things that they did. Go back to our verse in verse 15. From the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest be destroyed. He intended to sacrifice these animals, did he? Now, I mentioned last week that I wondered if Saul was lying here. Maybe he's just been caught red-handed and he wanted wanted to soften the blow. And if he hadn't been caught, maybe he would have intended to keep the animals. But as I thought about it more, I wonder if it doesn't go back to what Saul was doing back in chapter 14. When he was making rash vows, nobody eat until I take vengeance on my enemies. And his son Jonathan, having not heard him, ate. And when Saul tries to discern who broke the oath, Saul vows again, I will find out who did this and kill him, even if it's my own son. Luckily, they saved Jonathan. But my point is this. Saul might be telling the truth here. Maybe he intended to sacrifice these animals to God, but it could be this too. Instead of just destroying everything in warfare, because any king can do that, I'm going to make it a spectacle. (laughs) It's going to be grand. It's going to be the biggest sacrifice anyone has ever seen before because I'm just that holy. Just as Saul is making a monument to himself, he could be trying to be really holy for really self-serving reasons. He could be trying to prove to Samuel that he's a righteous king. But he's fooling no one, not even himself. And he lets that slip too. See, he's taken up a habit here that persists throughout the chapter. He says it three times, but it begins here in verse 15. Who is Yahweh to Saul? It's Samuel's God. (laughs) The Lord your God. Not the Lord our God, not the Lord my God. Interesting. He's going to make a sacrifice to God in worship, but then he distances himself. It's Samuel's God, not his God, or at least not one he's comfortable saying that is his God. Well, Samuel's not hearing any of it. Because Saul's super-duper sacrifice isn't the problem here. Saul's promising a super-duper sacrifice, wants to carry it out, but it's from a root that's completely unrelated. Stop, exclaims Samuel. Now this might be a little gutsy because Samuel is talking to the king. But as I said last week, Yahweh is still the king. And Samuel is still Yahweh's mouthpiece. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night, Samuel says. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, haven't you become the leader of the tribes of Israel? Just a little background here, because I know we went through the first part of Samuel 47 years ago. Saul had a weird reluctance. One can see in chapters 9 and 10, when Samuel approaches him about being king, Saul says he's not from the best tribe. Saul doesn't tell his uncle that he's been singled out for king when his uncle 
explicitly asks him what he talked to Samuel about. Now, in that day and age, Samuel was like the president. Oh, you had a chat with the president? What did he say to you? Well, I'm not going to tell you that he said I'm king. And then my favorite is at the coronation ceremony. Saul is hiding. And it literally takes the voice of God to point out where he is. And though Samuel had already informed Saul that he wasn't going to be king forever in chapter 13, or at least his family wouldn't, Samuel here is saying, though you thought yourself small and unimportant, you're still the king. The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Right? You had one job, Saul. Destroy everything. Spare nothing. But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops, and he blames the troops again, they took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, So he's twisting it a little bit. He's saying, they're going to be destroyed, just like you instructed. Well, not exactly. It was understood, no doubt at all, understood to annihilate all things on contact, not contain them for later. (laughs) To sacrifice to the Lord your God. There's that phrase again, that distancing at Gilgal. Gilgal seems to be, in the book of 1 Samuel, kind of a pre-Jerusalem worship center. Jerusalem is not around at this time. There are a few worship centers, it seems, at this time. Whenever Samuel was a kid, there was Shiloh. And then in an army with the Philistines, the Philistines took out Shiloh. Then there was Mizpah and Gilgal, and both places seem to be like where very significant worship takes place. From the outset, I wonder if we might identify with Saul here. See, we might say, well, really, is what's the big deal? <laughs> if the animals die in the annihilation or the sacrifice, it seems like God is just really bent on being unkind and unfair to Saul. But Samuel's about to explain it to him. Samuel's about to show why Saul's plans for a super-duper sacrifice ceremony are really wrong in motivation. We read really some key verses from the entire book of 1 Samuel. Beginning with verse 22 says, Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Attitude comes down to attitude. It's not enough to do things, to perform. I've heard this before, especially in couples. I do this and this and this, and it's just never enough. They keep nagging me. Amen. What? <laughs> Well, I'll talk to you afterward. No. <laughs> right here is the answer. Attitude. You could work your tail off, make a million dollars, and if you gave that million dollars to your spouse, here, are you happy now? <laughs> well, sure, it's a million dollars. I'm sure they're happy about that. 
But one thing they wouldn't be happy is your attitude because you didn't do it out of love. You didn't even do it out of service. You really did it out of a very selfish and very sinful and very proud, arrogant, disgusting attitude that has nothing to do with your spouse. When Saul's making monuments for himself one day and making plans to make a sacrifice to God the next day, the sacrifice has absolutely nothing to do with God. I don't know if Saul knows this, but what he needs is forgiveness. That's what he needs right now more than anything. In fact, I would hazard a guess that for the rest of Saul's life, he's a man haunted by his need for forgiveness. He is a man whose every action, every expression of his life, though it appeared to not be directly correlated, those actions and causes are related at the root to his need to seek and find forgiveness from the Lord. You ask Saul, he would say, well, I started down this bad path when I was rejected by God, told I wasn't good enough. But we always do this with any criticism, no matter how right or valid or on the spot it is. We twist it and we eat it the way we want to hear it. I'll give you an example some person I really look up to, and they and I have some disagreements about some theology. End-time theology, don't worry, he doesn't come here. <laughs> and a few years back, I was preaching through the book of Mark, and I got to chapter 13, the same material that we just read in Matthew earlier today. And I let this person know I'm preaching through it, they listened to it, and the one word that stuck to me in their criticism was... I don't know, it sounds kind of controversial the way you're preaching it. Now, I can almost deal with, that's a boring sermon, Pastor, more than you're preaching controversy. Now, I knew, know this person, and I know this person well enough to know that really it was just coming from disagreement more than just labeling, labeling me along the likes of false teachers and misleading liars from the pulpit. But it stung. And in retrospect, what did I do? I honed in on the stinging words and I ignored and minimized and dismissed everything I knew about the relationship between this person and what I have. Eventually this person discerned that the idea of labeling my sermon controversial due to my views was what was brewing in me more than anything. And then they clarified and in fact they said, you're not preaching controversy. I may disagree with what you're saying, but it's not controversial. Now, I brought that story up to show you this. Everything in me knew that this person used specific words that stung me. I knew this person enough to know that they, what they were really trying to say. And it wasn't from a heart to brand me as someone incapable of ever listening to ever again. If Saul knew God's heart, really knew God's heart, he wouldn't run from God. He wouldn't be doing what he's doing to God and to Samuel right now. What is he doing? How is he acting? A lot of these two verses is very key, but I want to hone in on one word in particular. I believe it was verse 23. Defiance. Defiance. Literally means this, to push back. Stubbornness. Defiant. Saul is not going to listen. He's the king. Samuel was wrong. By golly, God was wrong. And Saul's going to show them how wrong they were. 
Oh, you want to sacrifice God? I'll give you the biggest, most glorious sacrifice anyone's ever seen. I'm going to make, I'm going to take all the combined herds of the Amalekites and we'll just have one big happy bonfire. That enough meat for you, God? Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. Is this how you worship God? It's not sacrifices, but it is wrong motivations. God, why did you give me this situation, this person in my life, this whatever? And then it's okay, God, I'll do what's right. And our work for God is guilt-led and performance-led and prideful and patronizing and condescending. And it reeks of religious self-righteousness, but just not obedience. And don't miss this too. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. If Saul was truly paying attention, he'd know this. He's a king with a kingdom whose days are numbered. If Saul was truly paying attention, he'd know this. He was to destroy everything and spare nothing instead of spare some animals for a super-duper sacrifice ceremony later on. But he's not in it to obey God. He's in it to be defiant about what he knows. And if he knew God's heart, he wouldn't be honing in on the sting. He would be honing in on the relationship. You catch my illustration? Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. That's what it comes down to. As I made mention a little earlier, sometimes we have little attorneys in our heads and hearts and they're active every time we're convicted because that's what they're there for. The passage really isn't meant that way. You're okay in your sins. Don't take this too seriously. There's a lot to question. There's a lot to doubt. How easy do you think it would be for anyone to hear your kingdom has been rejected? It wasn't easy for Saul, so he chose to be defiant and to reject the Lord's word. Here's the, here's the sad thing. You're like, that was sad enough. Paul says this in Romans 1. That unrighteous men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. You ever run into a pathological liar? I, I never had until one point, it was whenever I was in Moscow and Pullman, working for Pepsi, and I ran into a person I knew from my childhood, was so surprised to see them, didn't expect to see them in Moscow Walmart, of all places, and I'll just call him Rick, and Rick starts going into this whole career he had in the Marines. Rick's like maybe two to three years older than me. And I start thinking about the supposed campaigns he went on, the battles he was in, and something's not right here. My mom was still in touch sometimes with his parents, and sure enough, I hear eventually that Rick is a well-known pathological liar. And it was crazy because he believed it. It's not that he seemed to even subtly suggest that he knew he was feeding me lies. He just a hundred percent, I have no doubt, believed everything coming out of his mouth. I heard via his parents, I don't think he was ever in any military whatsoever. Now, I don't know. I'm assuming there's some mental chemistry problems going on there as well. But it's a perfect picture for what Paul is saying. Just as pathological liars believe the garbage that comes out of their mouth. So people, there comes a time in their sin. That though there was a day when the sinning started growing, that they knew 
really what was right and what was really wrong, there eventually comes a day that it's so buried in all the justifying, all the excusing, all the dismissing, the minimizing, the diminishing, that if God's truth were a snake that bit them, they wouldn't even know it. Though there was a day that they did, or a time. The prophet Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus' brother James writes for us that, but each person when he is tempted, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Are you one desire away from sinking into unrighteousness, sinking and entering into a place where the Lord is no longer near? Are you already past that threshold? Saul here is essentially dying for forgiveness. He needs to seek forgiveness. He needs to be forgiven, but he's been lured and enticed by his own desire. That desire is giving birth to sin, and it's growing. And sadly, the rest of 1 Samuel is going to give us a picture of that sin fully growing to eventually get to death. Friends, the Lord is near right now. Here's what I fear. Some of you are dying for forgiveness. Are some of you cold and calloused and your default mode is just justifying pride, arrogance? Are you looking up at me? Are you talking about me? I'm innocent. I don't owe God anything. Are you sinking under what really is your own unrighteousness? And whatever the problem is, whatever the mess you're in, You don't need any guilt because it's not your responsibility. It's not your fault. Sometimes that's the case. But I wonder, just as Saul is really no victim here, maybe you or I am not as much as a victim as we'd like to think we are. This is your chance. This is the way out. This is the hand reaching down several fathoms into the water so far down where you thought nobody cared. And if you're honest, it's felt like rainstorm after hailstorm after windstorm, lightning storm, bad things one after another, and you're always rejected. You're always dismissed. You're always the victim. And the hard truth is this. Maybe this isn't everyone else's problem. Maybe it's your problem. I can say that behind a pulpit. (laughs) And I know you don't bring tomatoes. And the good truth is this. Know this. There have been some Samuels who have been angry and grieving over you and crying out to the Lord all night long on your behalf. And rather than hearing the sting of being rejected by the Lord, hear the grace that the Lord is extending you. This could be the day when you come up out of the pit. This could be the day when you realize you've been slowly dying and all the outside stuff, all the junk that's going on, it's connected to a root of needing forgiveness. You need to seek God for forgiveness. And then you need to receive His forgiveness. I invite you to pray with me and do that right here and right now. Father, um, The enemy is sneaky. And we really, maybe 
our lives are not like the book of Saul with Samuel. Thank God that our dirty laundry isn't on display for everyone to see. So we can't go back to a chapter and verse and find that day where it started. Maybe many of us have a clue of where it might started. but Maybe many of us don't because we've been down in the pit so long and our default mode is justifying, excusing, dismissing. I got my own problems, but they got more. When the sad truth is, is everyone's not against us. We're the ones making the problems. It's not that we go from place to place to place and find that we're always a victim. There's a common denominator in all those places, and it's us. So, Father, if that is the need that many of us feel right now, I pray right now that you would indeed forgive us. Father, we have sinned. We have done many things that have separated us from you. We have excused your conviction. We've sought to not repent. We've sought to live our lives and our relationship with you in a mode of defiance, performing, is this good enough for you? Are you happy now? Father, that is a sinful, disgusting heart. And like Samuel said, I don't care about all that stuff. I want what's in the heart, obedience. Pay attention to the word of the Lord. So, Father, would you forgive us if that's where we've been? We know that we can't do anything to pay you off, but thankfully you have sent your son Jesus to live the life we should live. And you've died to take away the sting of sin. And you rose again and you've given us your Holy Spirit to live like we should live. So forgive us and we thank you, Jesus, that you have taken the punishment. But now we ask that we would do what's right and we would live empowered by your Holy Spirit that we would seek to truly right those wrongs, not to do it out of performance, but from a genuine heart that wishes to right wrongs. Maybe it means seeking somebody else's forgiveness. Maybe it means seeking a lot of people's forgiveness. But Father, we come to you knowing that you're not a tyrannical dictator trying to get us to do what you want us to do, but you want us to be satisfied in life. You want us to thrive. You want us to do what you've made us to do. Thank you that that's the reason you always reach out to us so that we would live at peace with you and peace with one another. So, Father, I pray that these moments would not slip through the hands of those who are convicted. But, Father, that they would take this conviction, that they would feel a godly sorrow that brings about repentance so that within hours they can live life in a better frame of thought, a better disposition, most of all at peace with you and at peace with one another. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.